0: hello friends welcome back to vantage point where the vantage is the point i'm troy jennings and i am aaron pope and we thank you all so much for joining us yet again we thank you for supporting this podcast and all of the many ventures we have here at our father's table this podcast, of course, airs new episodes every Tuesday. In case you missed it, Breadcrumbs, hosted by our very own Aaron A. Pope, aired this past Saturday. So please make sure to catch that. Also, we have launched a new series called The Morning Meeting, which is a special mini-series for Lent hosted again by Aaron that airs every Monday morning during this Lenten season. Catch all of this content and more on either either our YouTube or our Facebook. Just look for Our Father's Table. And please, friends, remember to please like, share, and subscribe so that you can stay in the loop on all of the exciting content that we will be releasing. Well, friends, it's hard to believe we're almost towards the end of February, Black History Month, as we observe it. We've covered so many wonderful people. And today we'll be covering Fred Hampton for our last figure in black history. In addition to honoring him, we will be talking about the movie, Judas and the Black Messiah today. So Frederick Allen Hampton, he was born on August 30th, 1948, to Francis and Iberia Hampton. After graduating with honors from Proviso East High School, Hampton studied pre-law at Triton Junior College. He also attended Crane Junior College, later Malcolm X College, and the University of Illinois at Chicago Circle. Hampton led the Youth Council at the NAACP's West Suburban Chapter, growing membership to more than 500. He advocated for a community pool in his hometown of Maywood, which led to an arrest for mob action following a demonstration in 1967. Fred Hampton joined the Black Panther Party in 1968. He quickly rose in its ranks, both in Chicago and on a national level. However, the Black Panther became a law enforcement target. In the early hours of December 4, 1969, police raided Hampton's apartment and shot the 21-year-old to death. A later investigation revealed that police had fired nearly 100 times while only one bullet came from inside the apartment, and that prior to his death, Hampton had been surveilled and tracked by the FBI. So that, friends, is a brief little biography of Fred Hampton. I thought it was important to have some backstory on him as a person, and then get into some of the events that this movie chronicles. This movie put me through a wide range of emotions, and I'm sure it did for you as well, Aaron. It was uh, challenging. There were some moments, some glimmers of light. I was angry. Hmm. <laughs> I, I went through the, the gamut of emotions, and I'm so thankful that this film this film, is made. I think it's a necessary story for us to explore. Uh, the film was directed by Shaka King. Starring Fred Hampton is Daniel Kaluuya. William O'Neill, who is the FBI informant Uh, Lakeith Stanfield playing FBI agent Roy Mitchell is Jesse Plemons and Dominique Fishback was played uh, Deborah Johnson who was the in a relationship with Fred Hampton and also the mother of his son or their son together so this is a very uh, interesting movie and this only chronicles a portion of Fred Hampton's life he died, as I mentioned, at the age of 21. So definitely a, a life that was short-lived, but very impactful, a very impactful life. And in this movie, we get to see the portion where uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character, William O'Neill, as I mentioned, he's the FBI informant. And he ends up infiltrating the Black Panthers. And that's kind of where the, the movie is, is starting and how that led to the ultimate death of Fred Hampton. So Judas and the black Messiah, a very interesting title. I don't want to assume that everyone necessarily may know the significance behind Judas, uh, the black Messiah would be Fred Hampton. Judas would be William O'Neill. So Aaron, could you just give us some background on Judas and the black Messiah? How does that show up in the film, the whole narrative of Judas? The narrative
1: shows up in the film because it has a huge biblical connotation. And that biblical connotation is uh, Judas is selected as one of the 12 to follow Jesus. Mm. He is selected by the Messiah. He knows something is different and special about Jesus, but he's not quite sold on him being the Messiah. And he becomes a traitor and he sells out Jesus with the location for a coin Mm. and ignites the crucifixion of Jesus. And it is not until... Jesus is crucified, that Judas realized or realizes he may have actually been just what he said he was. And in the end, uh, if we will talk about it later, but in the end, when he comes to that realization, it is Judas who ends up hanging himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about this is that William O'Neill committed suicide. Mm-hmm. He committed suicide after the documentary Eyes on the Prize part two, which is a document series, came out, which I also I also saw. He gave an interview, which is in the movie in in portions. And it's uh, interesting. You know, I thank you for giving that that narrative about how it, it really connects to the whole narrative of Judas, because he really did give up Fred Hampton mm-hmm. for a, a coin mm-hmm. or for something material. Um, so that's um. That's very interesting. I and watching the the documentary because I wanted to go back just to see if there was anything of interest in there. The whole thing about the the black the Black Panther Party, I think that is um, a party that is very divisive for a lot of people. And I think one of the things I talked about in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. When it came to August Wilson is that it was important for him to tell our story mm-hmm. through his lens. And sometimes we allow other people to tell our stories and sometimes the truth gets lost in that narrative. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's perpetuated in the movie and in life is that the Black Panther Party was a terrorist organization. Uh, one of the characters in the movie and really uh, J-, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, Perpetuated Mm -hmm. is that this was like the number one threat. The Black Panther Party is the number one enemy to the United States of America. And he likened it to the Ku Klux Klan. What do you think about that whole thing about the Black Panther Party being a terrorist organization?
1: I think that. I think that narratives can be created, particularly when we can't see what people are doing. Mm -hmm. I think that they got away with it because things aren't as open and as televised and as seen. Now you went by what you heard. Yeah. Um, And I think they got away with that rhetoric because of what they heard, but also because secretly black men in America have been perpetuated as terrorists in America.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I really liked in the, the documentary Eyes on the Prize Part 2 is one of the participants in that. Her name is Marion Stamps, and she was a community activist. She said, and I quote, we understand that we need protection in the black community, and it's our responsibility to protect black women and black children, not the police, because the police are not here to serve and protect us, only to enslave us. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not necessarily the truth in terms of Some police are good. Not all police are bad. And I I don't want to necessarily perpetuate a narrative that I necessarily believe that all police are bad. But there are a lot of crooked police and a lot of police don't have the best intentions of specifically black people in mind as they are in our neighborhoods and they are policing us so i understand that narrative if that if this is not happening and you're not doing the job that you need to do and you're not protecting us and keeping us safe then we need to now rise up and to protect ourselves and to bear arms ourselves because we're not getting that protection from you and you've sworn to serve and protect us but is that really what's what's happening and um what's interesting is that she said to serve and protect us only to enslave us mm-hmm. and we see A lot of that. I mean, look at the prison system. That's a a modern form of enslavement Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, And during this time period, the FBI stepped up efforts to recruit blacks specifically to infiltrate the Black Panther Party. And that's where William O'Neill came in. What are your thoughts about William O'Neill? Part of me uh,
1: has compassion for him and not Mm. because he is a traitor. Part of me has compassion for him because he's thinking... Or he's rationalized in making sense that he was doing what he thought was best, and not so much thought was best, but what he thought he could come out on the other side of it on top and so th- there is an instinct of survival hmm. um that I see in him that he's just trying to you know live trying to make a living um It's interesting that this may have been the only one real job he ever had, yeah. He's known for boosting cars and doing all these other things, but him actually being an informant, not to justify it, but this may have been the only place of stability for him, which is why he continued to say yes. Mm. Um, my thoughts on William O'Neill kind of go in a number of directions uh, because I do personally see that there is an internal struggle yeah, about what he's doing and what he is experiencing, um, even down to the documentary you spoke of um, and what he says in the documentary, when I heard the question he was asked about, you know, what do you think, you know, they'll say about you after hearing this, this, any other, he went to a whole nother place. It lacked personal accountability. Mm. Only to find out that after it was aired, he committed suicide. Yeah. And it was almost like he never heard what he said. He was just talking.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and it's also it's interesting sometimes to hear yourself back. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting experience for people where because sometimes we're so close to ourselves. We can't really see. Sometimes we have blinders on or lack of awareness. I'm always interested, especially in the kind of area that we're in, entertainment or arts where we're watching ourselves back or we're listening to ourselves back. There's something about that. And then knowing that all these literally eyes are on me now and in the moment, I mean, he is an opportunist. He was an opportunist in a lot of ways. Um, he impersonated FBI agents in, off, in order to boost cars off of people, like you said. And when the Roy Mitchell pulled him in and was interrogating him, one of the things that he basically said was he was asked, why why are you impersonating an FBI agent? And he said the the badge is scarier than the gun, that anyone can get a gun on the street but a badge a badge is like you have the whole army behind you. And, and there's something about that. You know, there's more of you than there are of, of us. And the mere fact that I have this badge is the, um, the threat. And that's enough for me to be effective in order to, to get this. And one of the things is, in order to recruit William O'Neill, Roy Mitchell basically says, hey, you can either go in two directions. You're going to get 18 months for stealing the car. And also five years for impersonating a federal officer. And or you can come over to this side and agree to infiltrate the Black Panther Party and give us some intel on them. And then you can just walk away and go home. (laughs) Now, because he in that sense, he was self-serving. He decided to put his own interests ahead of community, because one thing about the Black Panther Party, it's It was community. That's how it was perpetuated. This is a community, whereas Roy Mitchell was more so about himself. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is, and I think sometimes in life, some of us get into this kind of thing, we get ourselves into things and don't realize the full extent of what we're getting ourselves into because it did escalate. I think at first it was like, okay, I'm just getting intel on them. It's nothing too serious, nothing too bad. But then slowly it got a little bit worse each time, each time. And Lakeith Stanfield, this is a character who some people can, can judge him or his actions. I think one of the interesting things to me as an actor, I've heard people say to actors and actresses, how do you play that role? You know, th- this is a bad guy or this is an unforgivable guy. They've done something that requires no empathy or no remorse. But one thing as an actor, we're trained to not judge the characters that we're playing. Hmm. We have to understand what motivates this particular character because there was an intention and a motivation that he had. I think in the documentary, he even described it as he was part of the struggle Mm -hmm. or he was part of the revolution, that he realized that he, in his mind, he took some kind of action, and this action led him to be part of the struggle. Now, that's questionable, but I think Lakeith Stanfield did a good job of humanizing him in some kind of ways. Mm -hmm. I think there were moments because... What's interesting about William O'Neill, we don't have a lot of material on him. To my knowledge, this is the only interview he did for Eyes on the Prize Part 2. We don't have a lot of footage or interviews. So there's not a lot to go on. I like that Lakeith really gave us instances of conflict. Mm -hmm. There was personality. Yeah, the personality. Mm -hmm. There was like a a push and pull. There were moments where he was in, the moments like, ooh, that's kind of too far. Some moments where he was indulging in it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really... um, It's really interesting, and it's also interesting that he looked up to Roy Mitchell. He said that he was one of his role models, and he likened him on the same level of uh, a Malcolm and a Dr. King, and Muhammad Ali. Which is (laughs) mind-blowing.
1: That is mind-blowing. When I heard that line, I was just like, no way. There Mm. there can't possibly be a way, but I do understand. um, Because if I use the rationale that I gave myself watching the film, I understood... Um, Lake's portrayal of William O'Neill and saying yes to that because he was offered a consequence he never considered.
0: Mm, yeah. He
1: considered if he got caught, he was going to do some jail time. Mm-hmm. He considered it, he would get in trouble for impersonating an FBI agent. What he didn't consider was, I can walk away.
0: Yeah, and I can actually walk that, away. Yeah, that yeah. Was,
1: it was a door, it, it, an opportunity. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That he took to say I can um, walk away with that being said, that's why I readily understood the conflict in his character. I wasn't completely like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. Like, he's just a mess. No, I was in a place of I see why you're trying to do what you're doing. But to go to the point of him correlating um, Roy Mitchell into a higher platform than what he gave. I gave that correlation to say that he was, again, offered something he couldn't readily get. Hmm. People like Malcolm X gave hope for certain things. People like MLK gave hope for certain things that weren't readily able to grasp. Yeah. Um. And Roy Mitchell gave him that same kind of hope, but he gave him something monetary to put it in his hand. Yeah. It was touchable hope. It wasn't just hope. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just a paradigm. It wasn't just the thought. It was, oh, I could get a little this and do something better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I also watched was an interview with Shaka King on The Breakfast Club. And one of the things that he um, he said, I believe he referred to, you know, William O'Neill as a, a capitalist and. Also, he likened him to Fred Hampton in the sense that he said they both want power. They were both looking for freedom and power, but they went about it in different ways. And that's really true because William O'Neill was more capitalist. And that was defined as one goal to exploit the people. Uh, whereas Fred Hampton was more about the the community. And a lot of the things the Black Panthers did, although it was perpetuated as a terrorist organization, they fed children They fed the hungry. They helped families. They wanted to educate people about themselves and give them knowledge of self.
1: They were starting to try to cultivate a community medical center. Yeah. Which anybody who knows anything about anything medical, that's a costly endeavor. And they were trying to bring it to their community. They were trying to do so many monumental things that I think got thrown under the bus Mm -hmm. um, for the sake of being seen a certain kind of way.
0: Yeah, And the whole thing with J. Edgar Hoover saying was one of the number one threats is the Black Panther Party and likening it to the Ku Klux Klan. You know, I think one of the most dangerous things to some people is our educated black people Mm -hmm. or free black people because that's dangerous. Knowledge is dangerous Mm -hmm. in and of itself, having that knowledge of self. And... We know we see this and so many things we've talked about already. You know, look at Malcolm X, look at, look at Dr. King. All of them were surveilled by the government. I was even reading an article, a recent article about Malcolm X saying the government, the FBI, may have had more in the hand of him, his assassination than previously thought. And the family wants to kind of reopen that investigation. This has been going on time and time mm-hmm. again, which is why a lot of black people have a mistrust of the government and a mistrust of police. Even look at something like the... Um, you know, COVID-19 and the vaccine. A lot of black people have a mistrust in that. Not interested. Because we have a mistrust in the government. Yeah. You know, and a lot of that has been underplayed or been kept under wraps. But this is a clear example. I mean, they surveilled the Black Panther Party. Like I said, they infiltrated it. They had so many informants inside of it. Black people, informants inside of it. (laughs) You know, it was a, a threat to them, you know.
1: What's sad to me is they have a legitimate stance on things. And their stance on things has been oftentimes dismissed. Mm-hmm. When you hear things about um, uh, Henrietta uh, uh, Lassen, Jax, is it? Um, and just mm-hmm. that whole ordeal or the Tuskegee experiment and things like that. When you hear about things like that, they have legitimate place to feel the way that they do Mm -hmm. and I think it's oftentimes disregarded and made to you know be oh it's a a conspiracy or you know they just conspiracy theories or anything like that Um, but to speak to um J. Edgar Hoover it was control when I heard that line I heard control Mm -hmm. I need you all to help me control them because they're doing things outside of our purview and if they ever get to a place where they fully can function without us, it's gonna be a problem.
0: When we talk about control, one of the things about control is it's rooted in fear. Fear. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to control this because I have a fear. Mm-hmm. Have a fear of what could happen. What would happen if Black people organized and they knew who they were and they have a knowledge of self and they and they function in the power that you know we have. What would happen? You know, and it, it's so interesting that whether it was in a peaceful way or whether it was in a perceived more aggressive kind of way it was still a um, a threat to mm-hmm. to the powers that be. That's I, why
1: it was easy to call them terrorists, because he yeah, was scared. <laughs> yeah, He was scared. He saw them as terrorists.
0: Right. Really, the United States <laughs> has been a terrorist organization in <laughs> a lot of ways. When we see all the things that we've done, not only domestically, but internationally. True. And yet you call black people uh, terrorists, this yeah. particular group This terrorists. organization, yeah. Right, because they don't do it in the way that you think it should be done. And
1: or you can't control how right. they do what they do.
0: Right. Unless you present yourself in a way that is acceptable, unless you're mild-mannered mm, or you sing palatable. kumbaya, mm-hmm. then, okay, those, are, those aren't the the Negroes that we want to associate ourselves with. You have to be in line. You have to be tame. Mm. When you're not, then we say you're a threat, and then we want to silence you. Um. Also, what was interesting about shaka king's interview in terms of him wanting to make it because i you know this is a story that it's very interesting and got picked up for distribution by a major company like warner brothers and i think he acknowledged that in the uh the interview but you know one of the questions was why not make this about fred hampton and his life because it's not necessarily about his life it's picking up you know right before he he died a snippet yeah yeah and it's starting from William O'Neill and the uh, the glimpse of the interview that he did on for Eyes on the Prize. But he said he kind of wanted to use this as to spark interest in people to learn more about Fred Hampton. And I think it was successful in doing that. Absolutely. I think, you know, I, I had heard of it, but I was not that familiar with it. And one of the things that was talked about, we know more about how he died than about his life, which is why I wanted to start it with that biography. You know, it wasn't able to cover everything he did, but it started with him as a person. And not just how he died, because that is almost to minimize him. We only talk about his death instead of also the accomplishments that he made and what he contributed. Um, So I thought that was um, that was good. He also said this is a counter propaganda film (laughs) uh, because a lot of what has been perpetuated about the Black Panthers has been propaganda, I would suggest.
1: Yes. And or rhetoric that was given to us, not a rhetoric that could actually have been on true principles or true thoughts or true things that they've actually done. It was, uh, in my interpretation, it was event, event organized, if that makes sense, to the point where they were going based on an event, okay, they did this here and that was bad, so we got to perpetuate this one event as they were bad, forgetting all of the great things that they've done. We've got to perpetuate every time they, you know, the old folks would say, get caught with a slip showing, <laughs> mm. type deal. <laughs> and we highlight those moments because the more we highlight those moments, the more credibility we have in expressing the narrative we want for them to be perceived as.
0: Yeah, and I think the film did a good job to say that not necessarily everything that everyone in the organization did was something we should necessarily applaud. Mm-hmm. There were some instances of when they were reactionary to certain things or you know, the whole shootout that happened at the headquarters that could have been done in a different way. At the same time, we have to understand. I'm always asking why. Mm. It's not enough just to say, oh, this crime in this community, why is it happening what are the roots of it? What are some things that i have left unsaid? You know, I think we have to understand their pain and their struggle that would lead them to do a thing like that. And it doesn't mean that people can't be held accountable and we can't conduct ourselves in a manner that is integral and that has, you know, being able to just have certain standards about how we carry ourselves. We don't necessarily have to fight fire with fire per se. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, well, there, there are some situations where you might have to use some kind of. force. I'm not saying you want to go out and kill people, but sometimes different contexts or different situations require different things of us. And um, they were a complex group, a complex organization, Mm -hmm. I will say. And uh, one one of the interesting things that Shaka King said about William O'Neill was that sometimes we are weaponized against each other as black people. Truth. And this was um, very evident with William O'Neill. He was weaponized against his own people.
1: With William O'Neill, with um, Martin Luther King and, and um, Malcolm X, with Bloods and Crips. Like, we can go down the line of history, particularly our history, where we can say we were pitted against each other.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: In efforts to say, you know, the best thing we can do is not handle it. Let them take each other out.
0: Yeah, let them take each other out. I mean, we're we're even seeing that today. You know, we're coming from from uh, Maryland and you know Baltimore, Maryland. Look, look at all the the crime that we have and black on black crime. You know, and there's all kinds of reasons and and sources of that. There's not necessarily one particular remedy or you know resolution to that, but it's a it's a complex a complex issue. I mean, that's one thing we're taking each other out, but we are also weaponized to do that against each other as well.
1: Fred Hampton uh, is quoted, and I hope I get this quote right. Um, I should have wrote it down, but Mm -hmm. he's quoted with saying, um, we're not here to fight fire with fire. We're here to give strength to what water can do to fire.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: I thought that was monumental because that was one of the things that he was stressing in um, what he was trying to do. I'm trying to create a new appeal Mm -hmm. to extinguish the fire. And though they have been perpetuating it as if, we are fighting on the same platform. We're not because I still get up every morning and I feed these kids. (laughs) I still make runs. I still work with the other um, minorities in my community and rally people who are um, of a different descent. I I love that whole um, rainbow coalition initiative to where it's not, we're not just going after a color of, the marginalized we want everybody who's been marginalized
0: yeah yeah I think that is true and also One of the things that the movie clearly shows that he was clean. Fred Hampton was clean. Even William Marshall said in the documentary that, you know, he tried to surveil him and couldn't find anything on him. And they, they, you know, they wanted to lock him up so badly. And eventually they pulled him in and they pulled him in because he was charged with stealing about $71 worth of ice cream. Ice cream. And they gave him, what, about two to five years (laughs) for stealing ice cream? Ice cream. For being said (laughs) that he stole ice cream. Yeah, Allegedly, we don't even know if that's necessarily
1: necessarily true It's ice cream saints ice cream there's no way in the world you get two to five years for ice cream
0: right <laughs> and you know, Shaka King said, really, it was about trial conviction and execution. That's you... really what what they were doing. They wanted to be the the judge, jury, and executioner of this. They didn't want the due process of law, and because there was one point. Where, you know, Jay I- Edgar Hoover is calling in and they're like, hey, you know, we, we actually were able to to get him. The appeal didn't go through or something like that with Fred Hampton. And, you know, we got him. He's going back to prison. And he's like, prisons basically is not enough hmm. because some people become su- superheroes in, um in prison. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Huey P. Newton became one in prison. I, I don't want that, basically. And that kind of ends with the, the latter portion of the of the film, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, Huey P. Newton became legendary. Yes. In prison. Yeah. I also
1: wanted to correlate because I thought it was the coolest thing, because that's what I thought about when I was watching the film, the whole bit on ice cream. The first thing I thought about when I heard that ordeal on ice cream was one night in Miami where they don't have anything but ice cream and we've talked about One Night in Miami. Oh, yes. And I was just like, oh, come on. Like, is there some type of mm-hmm. subliminal message to this ice cream? I don't like ice cream, no." I'm kidding. So <laughs> I thought that was interesting that that's something that's been showing up in films a lot. Vanilla.
0: <laughs> mm, true. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, a lot of times things are very circular. History repeats yeah. itself. You know, we advance, but, you know, I would ask the question... How we advance as far as we think we have, Mm. especially when it comes to race, because it was more overt at a certain point. It's more covert in some cases, but it's still there. You know, although we're not getting sprayed by water hoses and being, you know, dogs attacking us, it's still there in sometimes very subliminal kinds of ways.
1: And or not so anymore. The Mm. previous, you know, presidential administration made it okay. To come out of hiding,
0: <laughs> yeah, he made it acceptable. Yeah, to incite that kind of thing. Yeah, but it was already there. hmm He just gave them permission to, to act out. on it. Yep. Like it's okay now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's okay now. I can do this now. But it was there all along, mm-hmm. you know. And there's, you know, there's so many reasons, so many reasons. But it, it's there. It's there. And I, I like this film because I think it will lead people. It will spark people to want to know more about yeah. Fred Hampton. Uh, I think one of the things uh, Shaka King talked about is perhaps he wanted to do maybe a series, some kind of series about him. Um, I hope that this will allow him to reach that that goal. I think there's a lot more that needs to be learned about him and and, uh, and and his life because he did live a full life even prior to you know this one moment. What were some other things that stood out in the film for you?
1: Um, one of the things that stood out in the film for me is um without jumping to the end one of the things i like is i like the way the uh film started with a question and it is will william o'neill who is asked a question that he does not answer yes and it is not until we get to the end of the film that he answers the question Hmm. and i thought that was brilliant i know we're going to talk about what he said later so I'll hold off on that but I thought that was a great way to start it because it was okay who is this guy and what contribution did he make only yeah. to figure out he contributed more than we asked for hmm. um, I thought that was interesting also one of my favorite um, moments in the film is when he looks at William O'Neill, Lakeith uh, Stanford's um, portrayal of William O'Neill and he asks uh they he brings him back to jail and he is interrogating him in jail and he says um,
0: pig hmm. to um what's his name for um w- William O'Neill or Roy Mitchell I'm talking about he says pig to
1: Roy Mitchell and he apologizes and Roy Mitchell says to him don't apologize Don't apologize for calling me the pig because that means you are actually becoming what we need you to be. Mm. And for me, if I had heard that, I would have had a different response. William O'Neill in the movie has a certain kind of response to say, I heard what you just said, but it don't bother me.
0: Did a part of him secretly want to be him? Hmm. Did a part of him want to be white? Hmm. There's a thing. Because there's a thing in our community where a lot of black people, sometimes in childhood or what they have a desire to be white, Mm -hmm. because anything that's closer to white is more acceptable. There's a certain power. There's a certain access, you know, and how he carried himself in the movie as he got paid for what he did and he went along. You got to see he kind of carried himself, um, William O'Neill, with a certain his step. He started to dress differently. That one scene we had the, the, you know, the glasses on inside the restaurant. Now he's eating steak and mm-hmm. lobster. You know, this was not his reality. He didn't come from that kind of life or that kind of neighborhood. And, you know, who knows about his family? We don't get to see his family. We just know him. But he may not have seen any of that. But he can see that in Roy Mitchell, which is partly why he looked up to him mm-hmm. as a role model. He said this person was a role model to him. Because he opened up his home and he talked to him, and he was he referred to him as a mentor, even down to the car he drove. Yeah, the or car he, he requested
1: because he requested a car.
0: Yes, <laughs> he said, yeah, he "I need a one.
1: car that looks elevated enough to where it's appropriate enough to look like as if I stole it."
0: A lot of um, his character, as he was presented, was about his perception of how people perceived him. Mm-hmm. That was a large part of what motivated him. He wanted to be perceived in a certain way, which spoke to me of. He felt he wasn't enough, mm. that he had to be perceived a certain way. He don't want to just be a regular black man walking on the street. He want to have a certain car. He want to have certain kind of clothes. He wants to seem that he's set apart from what he was raised in or his reality. He wanted what Roy Mitchell had. I think one scene he asked, how much do you get paid? Mm-hmm. You know, to somehow think that. He would be kind of comparable equal to yes, him. Yes. But sometimes there's some moments where we're reminded, nope, nope You're not, not quite. quite in there. <laughs> not <laughs> quite. Oh, okay, you can go that far, but no, you can't go any farther than mm. that. We want to give you the appearance that yeah. perhaps you're being accepted, but you're not really you're not really one of us. So don't ever forget that you're not really one of us. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think at some point he almost thinks they're they're friends or or confidants. And he clearly saying, No, I'm still in charge, and he He even threatens him one time. Like, remember, you can go to jail. You can go to prison because of this. So if you say no at any time, okay, that's cool. But remember, these are the consequences. consequences. And they're still going to come. Yep. Because there's some moments where you see he's hesitant or he thinks they're going too far, but, you know, they're hanging that over his head. And I think one of the things that Shaka King said in that interview was, you know, if you don't stand, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Mm. And that William O'Neill was a a part of that. I think that's very important that sometimes we do have to make those challenging decisions to say, okay, this okay, I I could do that. But one accountability, I I did steal these cars. Mm. (laughs) There is a consequence for doing that. So I could take that consequence, but no. Instead of doing that, I am now going to betray my brother. Yeah. You know, and I think they did a good job of. Well, let's go into Fred Fred Hampton a bit. Uh, Daniel Kaluuya did an awesome job yes, portraying yes, Fred Hampton. Did. You know, he's um, a British actor. We talked about that before yes. in uh, one night in Miami. The actor who played Malcolm X, uh, Kingsley Benadir, also British. Um, And that whole thing is another thing altogether. Another show. (laughs) That we talked about. (laughs) Yeah. But it's interesting. Uh, He did a great job. The accent alone. He really nailed it. When I looked at interviews of Fred Hampton, Mm -hmm. uh, the speech pattern, Mm -hmm. the rhythm, the the cadences, he really captured that extremely well. The strength,
1: yet the laziness. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. There was so much power in uh, Fred Hampton's voice to where you believed everything you said, but he was so cool and so collected that he didn't force words. He didn't, you know, you know, punch you in the face with the stuff that he was trying to say. He wasn't even in the whole ordeal of using big extravagant words. He just was, there was strength in his presentation, but it was still simple, simplistic, still present, still relatable. Hey, he's one of us. And I appreciated that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I also like the the dynamic between him and Deborah Johnson. Hmm. I thought it was a beautiful love story that they were able to capture. You know, they are in a lot of scenes together per se, but in the short amount of time that we got to see them, I love their, their love story. I like that they chose to, to humanize him. And again, that goes back to this is a counter-propaganda film because he may have been vilified in other circles, mm-hmm. but we get to see not just him as a leader, but we get to see him at home in those maybe quieter moments with Deborah Johnson. And there's one moment where she shares this um, this poem with him, which I want you to go into a little bit mm-hmm. of that. Uh, before we do that, one of the interesting things is about the cost of being a revolutionary. Mm. What does it cost people to be a revolutionary? And go back to, as we alluded in the beginning, Judas and the Black Messiah, and that comparison to Judas and the Bible and Jesus and about Jesus was a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Fred Hampton was a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Malcolm X was a revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was a revolutionary. And what's interesting is that um, in the case of you know Malcolm, Dr. King, and Fred Hampton, they all had significant others. And the cost, I can only imagine the cost of the person and the relationship with them, what it may have cost them. And what's interesting is that Deborah Johnson has that whole moment where she's talking about the fear fear that i'm giving birth to a child that you may not see yeah and one of the things that you know fred hampton he proudly said i'm willing to die for the people i'm willing to die for the people and there was a very honest and transparent moment where deborah johnson basically said you know i don't i don't know how to feel about that i'm scared i love the purpose but you get to go out there and say that but then i'm left with the child and what if what if your life is taken then Mm. what well, where would that leave us? Yeah, And then she goes into a moment where she's at a loss for words because he's basically saying, you know, this is who I am. A part of me had to die in order to get here. And I love it. Beautiful moment where she just can't say anything. So she basically takes a pause and then she goes into this poem that she wrote for him. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about that poem. So um,
1: in doing research and looking up an interview, um, it is um, revealed um, by uh, Hamden Jr., um, that that wasn't um, a part of the script. That wasn't something that was intentional. It was a moment of creative license hmm. that um, Shaka took um, only because the character who plays his mom is her name's is Dominique Fish, Fishback and she had already been in the process of writing poetry as if she was her. And in the process of writing poetry as if she was her, they stumbled across her poetry and they asked her to read some. And in the process of reading it, they said, we've got to add this to the script because this is a real life relevant moment. What I love about what she reads and what she says in her poem is that what I have and what I hope for and what you hope for and what we could have together all kind of still lead to a place where we both might be unfulfilled. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That I am looking for you to be here tomorrow and you may not be here tomorrow. I'm still trying to figure out if I can raise a kid on my own. Hmm. Cause the day may happen where I may still have to do that. And I love the um, intimacy and I love what um, Hampton Jr. had said about it and just how, he was very honest to say that's not something that was a thing, but we were so glad it was added because it did speak to the genuineness in the heart of who his mom was in relationship to his father. Yeah. That he didn't see. One of the things that I find interesting is that he gets to watch a biography of his father who he's never met. So he can only live his life based on hearsay, stories, you know, yeah. the stories we pass down. So in his mind, he gets to create a version of his father.
0: Yeah. And I had seen that interview with um, Daniel Kaluuya and Fred Hampton Jr. And that whole thing about how they work closely together. Yes. which is uh, Which is awesome, you know, because... I can only imagine what that experience is like. Like you said, like I've never met my father. I've seen maybe interview clips or my mother's told me about him. And now I'm watching the film that's going to be distributed and seen by millions of people. And I get to see what he may have been like, you know? And it's, uh, it's a very interesting experience. And what about that whole thing about revolutionaries and the cost, the cost of what they often have to to pay? What makes them so revolutionary yeah. in a sense, it's so Do I interesting. Do have to die to be a revolutionary? Why is freedom revolutionary? Yeah. Why is truth revolutionary? Why is wanting the best for me and my people revolutionary? Isn't this a basic human right? And should it cost me my life? Should it cost me my life to speak truth to power? Why does that cost me my life? Why am I a threat to you? Mm. Because I simply want the best for my people and my community. You know, I, I think that's very important. And I think I, I appreciate that the movie they did not perpetuate Fred Hampton as a terrorist. Once, At one moment, William O'Neill, he basically came, he was uh, he had a, a wiretap on him, and he came to Fred Hampton and he basically said, you know, we should go down to City Hall and we should blow it up. And Fred Hampton clearly said, no,
1: mm.
0: no, that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean that by go out and, and kill all of them. Because one, you kill them, they're going to come and bomb us. And mm-hmm. there's more of them than there are of us. So there was a part of him that was strategic. He didn't want his people to die you know yes defend yourself absolutely defend yourself and we can clearly see at the end of the movie that it was important that they had some kind of protection or some kind of defense Mm -hmm. you know and before we get to the end of the movie because that is one of the hardest parts of it is there anything else that you wanted to uh talk about regarding the film
1: um two things one it's amazing to watch somebody who's 21 be that you know Um, aggressive and forthright and ready Mm -hmm. Um, and I speak that to this current generation um, outside of millennials the next batch of kids they are uh, they have a sense of fearlessness um, that I admire Um, and they ain't got no wisdom they're a little in their feelings but I do appreciate the fearlessness that they are willing to say this is a problem for us and we are willing to talk about it. I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, I just wanted to commend uh, Shaka King because I do know that uh, the movie was pitched in 2000, and I want to say 16, Mm -hmm. 15 or 16. um, And it was just about finding the right fit, the right script, and how they didn't abandon that. Um, and making sure that it was authentic. And I'm appreciating our stories being told from an authentic lens. Yes. Um, That's not important. A Hollywood lens, because Hollywood right. will perpetuate that they save the day. <laughs> mm. And I don't always like that. Um, but it is refreshing to see uh, things perpetuated by us for us. All that stuff. The last thing I want to say before we hit the end is one of my favorite lines in the movie is where there are people,
0: there is power. Mm. Where there is people, there is power. That
1: shifted me. Some kind of because, one, I'm church. So I heard Bible first, of course, with two or more gathered in my my name. name. I'm going to be in the midst. I can make something miraculous happen if y'all can just get on one accord type deal. I did go to church for a little bit. But then I came out and made it practical. And practicality is if we can just get together and get on the same page, we can do some real, you know, some real damage, some real things that if we can, you know, correlate or come under the umbrella of one goal. How we get to the goal, it may be different. But if we can come under the umbrella of one goal, we can do some serious things. And I just thought that um, that one
0: line was so powerful. And that's so important in that because it's not just that we come together, but we come together on one accord. Yeah. Because sometimes we come together, but we're not in accordance with each other. And then it's not productive or nothing gets done. And, you know, it's too much going on, too Mm -hmm. much confusion.
1: And the goal gets dropped.
0: Yeah, the goal gets lost in (laughs) the midst of all these personalities and self-serving interests. But if we have one accord, then things can get done.
1: Because we bickering over execution or who's going to do what or how stuff is going to be done when we can just say, let's just get it done. Yeah. And I thought that was a powerful line because I heard it resonated with me a bit.
0: Yeah. Well, going into the latter portion of the movie. I've seen a lot of films in my days. I've seen a lot of plays in my days. And that last about 10 to 15 minutes of the movie is one of the hardest things I have ever had to witness, especially one moment. I went through so many different emotions. I think one was just sadness, but Mm. overwhelming just anger. Mm. Like, how dare you? Mm. How dare you? And leading up to this moment, um, William O'Neill was basically told that, again... It's not enough that he just goes to prison. And basically he asked them at one point, So are you trying to kill him? You're trying to kill Fred Hampton? And basically that's what they wanted him to do. And Roy Mitchell told him, I want you to get a blueprint of his apartment. I want to know, you know, the inside out of his apartment. And then in another scene, which is interesting, um, William O'Neill is at a bar and he's approached by this strange woman and then this man who was with her it seemed like they were on a date together but the whole time they are also a part of the the FBI yeah. and he gives them this uh, drug which can you know make people fall asleep sedatum uh, sedatum yes and so the whole thing was basically give this to Fred Hampton that way he'll be defenseless when we infiltrate his apartment and great great job by laKeith because again we see that push and pull because he was at their um, their apartment, I believe. Mm-hmm. And we see the moment of, of hesitance, but then he eventually goes up to, to Fred Hampton and hesitantly asks him, you see the conflict in him, hey, uh, do you want another drink, chairman, as he was referred to, chairman. And he gives him that drink, and then the very next scene, you see the inside of Fred Hampton's Whew. apartment, the lights are off, everyone's asleep, there's some guards at the door, and... Um, Spoiling it, but not really spoiling it, because this is a real story that yeah. we know happened. <laughs> uh, so, um you know, we see outside there are people who turn off the light in the apartment hallway, and my God, they just start firing and they hit the person in front of the door. They turn firing the shots and shots. They turn the knob, had the nerve to knock <laughs> on to the knock, door, and have the heard, nerve to knock on the door. Yes, and when they heard a voice, shot, shot, just shot. That the thing that's crazy. I believe they shot 99 shots. The FBI, the police, they shot 99 shots, and the Black Panthers only shot one. They mm. shot one shot. And what really angered me with listening to documentaries is that they wanted to perpetuate a lie yeah. that the Black Panthers had fired it so many more shots. Yeah. But when they did um the tests of the ballistics and things like that, they realized that one, that was a lie. Clearly that was a lie. And they fired 99 shots at these people, and the Black Panthers only fired one shot. They fired one shot. These were people who were defenseless at night. You know, mm-hmm. it reminded me of things that, that have happened today in, in our society, like with Breonna Taylor. You know, people yeah. who are in that state. One, one of the most def- defenseless and vulnerable places a person can be in is in your sleep. And to know that they're coming into his house and then. Uh, Before I get to that really last moment, tell us some of your thoughts about the initial part of them coming in there.
1: Triggered. Absolutely.
0: Mm. (laughs) Um, And
1: I guess my trigger before I go into thoughts to give my triggers merit is to say I almost forgot I was watching a movie. Yeah. And felt like I was watching the news again. Mm. Within the last year, maybe two, watching that last moment, I was triggered because it was just like, oh, not another one.
0: Not another one. Yes. We've seen so
1: many. I was triggered. Um, but there was this key things that I noticed. I noticed the the turn on the knob. And once they couldn't get in, uh, the knock at the door and the knock at the door because they were only waiting for a voice. So at least they can say that, oh, somebody came to the door aggressive, shot through the door, didn't even let the door get open. He said, I'm coming. To mm. open the door. And they shoot through the door. Mm. Um, and just a number of moments of um, where you see they really have no regard. They just shooting aimlessly. Yeah. They shot up the whole place.
0: 99 shots.
1: Aimlessly. They were trying to hit everything that moved.
0: 99 shots. How many people would you say were in that apartment? Less than 10, right? Less than 10. 99 Maybe a shots. good
1: six, if that. But to see them shoot aimlessly and not just shoot aimlessly, but to see them um, shoot aimlessly with intention. Yeah. And it, And I go back to what we started the uh, uh, whole discussion with, and that is Judas came at night.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. Because there was no other time where he would be available where there was no other protection. Everything else that Jesus did was in the public eye. So that we couldn't do it in the public. We got to get him in an intimate moment at private at night. And watching that was like the correlation for me to watch all of that. But to the last moment, I'll let you start on that one. I'm going to just breathe over here.
0: So, I mean, that as if that wasn't enough. The last moment, Fred Hampton's in the back of the apartment in the bedroom with Deborah Johnson. And as they start firing, 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 Deborah Johnson is awakened and she's trying to wake up Fred, you know, trying to get him out of there. And we can see that he's been sedated by what was taken by the uh, drug that William O'Neill slipped in his drink. And as they shoot and shoot and shoot and they infiltrate the apartment, coming in the back way, coming in the front way, they eventually have the nerve again to say, turn on the light. And they're like, we're shot. Turn on the light, we wanna see. Or you know, if you don't turn on the light, we're gonna shoot you some more or kill you. And so they turn on the light and they force everyone who's still able to stand, To come out towards the front of the apartment.
1: Because they shot 99. 99 weren't
0: missed. (laughs) Right. They shot 99. So some of them, of course, pierced a lot of people in there. Some that killed people who were in the apartment. There there were some survivors. But uh, then Deborah Johnson, she feverishly tries to Mm -hmm. wake up Fred Hampton, trying to get her beloved out of the bed. The father of her child out of the bed. But clearly he's sedated. So she has to leave him. She has to leave him. And then we see her being pulled into the hallway. They put a gun on her stomach, which is carrying their unborn child. They go into the room where Fred Wait, Hampton is. I passed
1: the line. I'm sorry. Line? There was a great line where he points the gun in her stomach and says, look, we got another boy.
0: We got another boy. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Fred Hampton Jr. Yeah. And then they go into the room. They, I believe he was shot. He had been wounded. Uh, based on the news report, he had been wounded. Um, I believe they basically assessed him and said, you know, he's going to make it. He looks like he's going to make it. And then we see the camera on Deborah Johnson's face. Her eyes are like directly, just slightly beyond the lens of the camera. Mm. And we just see the horror and the pain in her eyes. And then we hear the gun go off. And they said he's good and dead now and we just see the horror and the pain in her face. And that moment for me was one of the hardest moments I've ever had to witness on film. I am glad they strategically did not show him being shot, but it was enough just to see a blurred vision of the room and then just see her eyes and her response to that. This man who was defenseless, vulnerable, drugged in his sleep, being shot dead on the bed.
1: Because the truth is, I can't watch another black man die publicly.
0: We've seen so many. Yeah. You know, even with George Floyd, it was hard. I couldn't even really watch the the entire thing because they say, oh, you know, put cameras on police officers. I mean, if they had told them back then, oh, that would be a great thing. We even have video footage and people still get acquitted. Yeah. So it's like, It's just done for sport. There's no one being held accountable, but that was a powerful moment. And it goes into what I talked about, the power of filmmaking. Mm. This is not an entertaining movie. You don't watch this to be entertained. Don't watch this to have a good time. Watch this to have life be mirrored at you and to be stirred, to take action. What is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to know and learn to be better? I think this is a tool seek education yet know about our history. So we don't repeat it, know about our history so that we can do better, that we can be better. And this is a such a, it's a powerful tool, a film that I I hope people will go to see yeah, because it really illuminated and it course corrected some kind of errors that we've had about the black Panther party or black about Fred Hampton or about the the struggle, the struggle that we have as, um, as black people. The and,
1: rhetoric we were told.
0: Right, the rhetoric that we were told. That's
1: not in Black History Month. <laughs> right, it books, was a convenience. In school, in a, yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> Man, but that It was that last hard scene. to,
1: for me, I've got a friend who always says to me, you're louder when you're silent. Mm. And for me watching that last scene where she is literally beating on his chest mm. to get him up, for me, it was a moment where she was louder when she wasn't saying anything because it was a moment where I can handle you going back to jail. Mm -hmm. What I can't handle is you dying. And then having to sit through what she was afraid of and watching her hear it. And they don't just say a thing. They say, Oh, it looks like he's going to make it. Hmm. Pow.
0: And we can't have him make it.
1: Pow, we can't have him do that. Mm. Two shots, not anymore.
0: Yeah, and she has so much going on. She's also carrying their unborn yes, child. pregnant. So there are even probably some limitations on what she feels she can or can't do because she's carrying another life inside of her. Has she not been pregnant, maybe she may have done mm-hmm. some other things to try and to stop it. I mean, there's not much she could have done. Mm-hmm. But the stakes were really raised for her because it's not just her life or the life of, you know, Fred Hampton, she's carrying an unborn child. Yeah. And she wants to live, if not just for her, for her child. For him, yeah. And because this is his legacy. Yeah. Now, at least he will be able to go on. His legacy will be able to live. You know, but that, that was, it was a haunting. Yeah, it was a and haunting he has. Moment. And he has. It's he an has. honor
1: to see that he's taking over um, the uh, Black Panther Cubs initiative that his mother started. Yes. Um, and those things, because technically he would have been a cub.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he would have been.
1: And that was cool to see um, a, a small moment of vindication Mm-hmm. that you didn't stop the plan of the vision.
0: So for me, wrapping up my experience of the film, to me, it's best summed up in a, a quote by Fred Hampton. And he, they put this in the movie. He said, you can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. You can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. That all those things will live on. Just because you may get rid of me, it doesn't mean that the essence of what this is, the idea of what this is, has died. In some cases, it gets stronger. Mm. It gets stronger even after my death. And it will go on because it's larger than me. And I think he made a point in the film to say, the Black Panther Party is not about me. You know, because I think at one point they tried to say, hey, we're trying to save you. We're trying to help you go outside the country. He said, it's not about me. Mm. We're, we're, work on the hospital, yeah. you know, and and probably the same thing we heard from, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, where part of them knew that it could be coming at any moment it could have come. But sometimes it's that sense of knowing where the end may be, be near that I'm planting these seeds because it's not just about me. Don't look up to me. Don't worship me. I'm more. The movement is more than me the revolution is more than me yeah and you know what places can we be a revolutionary and not everyone can be a revolutionary being a revolutionary comes with a cost and are you willing to pay that cost are you willing to pay that price because it's not a life that's going to be pretty it's a life that requires sacrifice it's a life that requires being selfless. And I think Fred Hampton is a supreme example of someone who was selfless and who loved and cared about his people. And indeed, he is a revolutionary, a black messiah or black revolutionary. He was that. Yeah. And I appreciated the film for informing me about a lot of things I didn't know and informing the world. I think it's a powerful, a powerful film. And I believe that people should see it. Ditto. I'm not gonna follow that up. ditto (laughs) Ditto. But yeah, I'm. um, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for it. And I. um, I do hope you. You see it. It definitely will trigger a lot of you. And and if you don't leave that movie with that last scene with your head in your hands or feeling (laughs) angry or some kind of response, uh, check your pulse to see if you're breathing. (laughs) And if you (laughs) got PTSD, just be light on it. Be light
1: on it because it will trigger up some things. And you be light on it. Be light on it.
0: Yes, friends. Well, I thank you all for listening today to this conversation about Judas and the black Messiah. I pray that you found it valuable. I pray that you found it informative. I pray that you will see the film if you haven't already and that you get something valuable out of the film. And now friends, as always, that leads us to the last portion of our show called fields of vision. And that of course is that segment of the show where we will highlight a quote or a text to help encourage and inspire you. Keurig Ashley
1: is stated or quoted by stating, the quality of your life will be determined by the quality of your contribution. Where you work to improve the lives of others, your life will improve automatically. You have purpose and where there is purpose, there is value. Value is the thing that people you engage and interact with and are connected to who pull on your gifts and your talents and your time, your instruction, your correction, your impartation, or even just a listening ear, because it comes with a place of worth, merit, benefit and profitability, profitability to making them feel like it has a place of value, which makes value easy to find, but hard to measure but it is a quality that shows up as a degree of excellence. The best version of you is the best thing that you can give to make any kind of contribution to this world. We need you, all of you. You are a vessel with hidden ideas, strategies, concepts, thoughts, and things that will help propel us into a new place what contribution will you make to improve the lives of others for all you may know they just may end up improving your own life automatically
0: thank you for that that's today's fields of vision and we thank you all so much for joining us here at vantage point we look forward to you joining us next time until we meet again friends be well